Hi, and welcome to The Wolf Pack. I'm Carl Wolfson, along with Kim Upham, Dylan Hydes, and Paul Block. Our mission to help defeat Donald Trump, elect Democrats, and make the world a happier place. We come to you from Portland, Oregon. Our show is produced by Patrick Zahn. Let's meet The Pack. Hi, I'm Kim Upham. I'm an energy lawyer, a policy analyst, and a voting rights advocate. I've, twor- I've worked with several state legislatures, including Oregon, and on several national campaigns. And like all native Oregonians, I enjoy hiking, photography, and counting the days till January 20th, 2020. And my name is Dylan Hydes. I have been working or volunteering in local, state, and federal politics for the past 20 years. I'm currently serving on the Westland Wilsonville School Board, where I was elected to a four-year term two years ago, so I'm halfway through that. And I currently own a small law firm in Lake Oswego, Oregon, and uh, that's where I spend my time when I'm not involved in politics. And my name is Paul Block. Um, 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 my background is in television and my first job producing was at The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. I did 8,000 hours of television all in and all anybody ever, ever cares about is what was Johnny Carson really like? <laughs> anyway, my only, my only real brush in politics was in the 60s when I was a, 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 a fervent supporter of Barry Goldwater. Uh, life has changed. I've gone in another direction. Well, uh, my name is Carl Wolfson, and uh, 10 years as a Portland, Oregon radio talk show host. And um, this is my 40th year of stand-up comedy. I'm actually very nostalgic about it. I, um, I'm i kind of sad in some ways. Uh, I was on Alan Thicke's show, Thick of the Night, every week, and Alan passed away suddenly. I was on Joan Rivers' show every week, and Joan passed away suddenly. I, I kind of wish I'd been on The Apprentice. Um, I would, since this is our first podcast, I want to thank you guys for joining me each and every week. And I want to say something about each of you, how much I love you guys. Kim Upham here uh, brings me, people know I collect political buttons. Kim actually comes to my house with buttons. She she showed up this weekend with a Pete Buttigieg button. Um, She goes out of her way to add to my collection. I love you, Kim, for that. Dylan Hydes uh, and I share a love of baseball, although he's a, a Cardinals fan, and I'm a Phillies fan, but I I know his dad's also a Phillies fan, so unfortunately the the baseball acumen didn't get inherited there. <laughs> Dylan is such a liberal that um, when his uh, last child was born, Dexter, in 2012, when I was on KPOJ, he asked listeners to call in and suggest a liberal middle name, and what did they choose, Dylan? Wellstone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say? Sorry. That's okay. Wellstone. All right. Wellstone. So Dexter Wellstone hides. That's it. Yeah. You're such a liberal. And Paul Block, my uh, my old friend who uh, who was in those glory days with Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show and has a million stories. Paul also produced a number of TV shows that I was on. Including The Alan Thick Show. Including The Alan Thick Show. I discovered Alan. Yeah, that's right. You did. And uh, maybe during our podcast life here, uh, Paul will tell us some of those stories about Johnny Carson that everybody asks about if they don't get him in trouble. I hope well, so. Well, it's hard to get me in trouble since Johnny's dead, Ed is dead, Doc is in Mexico, <laughs> Freddie DeCordova is dead, and Peter LaSalle just couldn't <laughs> give a damn about anything. And I want to 
a shout out also to Paul's wife, Gila. We are sitting in uh, the back room at the Lane Gallery, which is Paul's wife's art gallery. She's a talented artist, a terrific photographer as well, done headshots for many, many of the stars uh, while Paul and Gila lived in, in Hollywood, including Adam Sandler and, and others. And uh, Gila has given up her photography space here at Lane Studio, so we could do this podcast. So a shout out to Gila as well. Two things. She also designed clothing for Doc Severinsen and Cher. Uh, and this, the gallery is also shared by uh, Steel Door Gallery, uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful collection. Run of by art. our producer, Run, Patrick Zahn. Patrick Zahn. Let's give Patrick a round of applause for producing our show. So every week we're going to discuss some issues in the news and uh, hopefully make ourselves and you a little bit smarter uh, about politics and taking this fight to Donald Trump in 2020. Paul, you're going to be the person that gives us those initial questions. Let's go. Here's a question. Uh, uh, Will the Democrats stick together to defeat Donald Trump no matter who the nominee is? Dems in disarray is an overused media trope, but what can our candidates do to help achieve democratic victory? Well, it's easy to not be in disarray when you're the GOP because you're all white and Christian, male and heterosexual. And I'd put Christians in quote. Christians in quote. Okay. Uh, Democrats represent America. We are all faiths, all races, all genders, and we don't uh, discriminate in the same way. So... Um, you know, I think that trope is very overused. The media loves it. Um, but our disarray is part of part of our charm. And I do hope that our candidates will come together and support the eventual nominee, throw their full weight behind them. Um, I think you had a great idea, Carl. And one of them that we talked about last week was to articulate instead of fighting over the nitty gritty of health plans. Mm hmm. Let's talk about a set of principles that we can all get behind. Yeah, when, when Kim was talking about last week, we did a test show. And I did mention, and I think this is a great point to bring up, that it seems to be the biggest policy divide right now among Democrats is single-payer versus a public option or multi-payer systems. Uh, and it's really a proxy fight for moderates versus um, the, the liberal wing of the party. And if you, it, it actually, they're about 50-50 right now if you look at the polls, uh, 50% more moderate Democrats, 50% more progressives. Uh, progressives. What I would say say is let's put out a statement all the candidates together that if a democrat is elected president we take both houses of congress we will as expeditiously as possible fashion universal health care for all it may be single payer it may be another plan but let's state that as our goal in a broad sense I think this is a really scary question. We, in 2016, this is exactly what happened to us with, you know, Putin and his uh, troll farms made it their mission to divide Democrats. And he did it very effectively by essentially doing two things. First was trash the nominee, just a, a relentless negative campaign. And then the second thing he did very effectively was to feed the nominees who weren't successful these ideas that the election wasn't fair, um, your candidate didn't get a fair shake, and getting them to focus on the process rather than we're now in a general, this is a binary choice between a yep. madman and who we have now. Um, and, and we also know we have Trump, who's going to not be running on his own record, but be running on this scorched earth campaign whose mission is to get everyone to throw up their hands and say, I'm just disgusted with everybody. Um, we need to make sure that we call that out um, and recognize this is going to happen and be proactive about it. 
I want to, uh, first of all, I think there will be uh, a slamming of Democrats by other Democrats for the entire thing until there's only one left, and then maybe it will stop. I'm a little bit afraid that some of the crazy people will say, well, let's let's run a third party because we want our guy and we want nobody, or girl, and we want nobody else. Um, but I'd also like to say that a lot of the policy stuff that people are fighting over, in my opinion, uh, 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 is irrelevant. Uh, because none of it matters unless the Democrats take the Senate and the presidency. Uh, otherwise, you know, uh, tell me all you want about universal health care. We ain't going any place but taking away uh, 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 health care from people unless the Senate goes Democratic as well as the presidency. You know, those are all good points, but I got two words for you. And the question is, what can our, our candidates do to achieve Democratic unity and victory? I got two words for you. Supreme Court. Supreme Court. If you're out there and you want to protect a, a woman's right to choose, a woman to have control over her own body, if you believe in full equality for LGBT Americans under the law, if you want real tools to deal with the effects of climate change, if you want your kids to be safer from gun violence in schools, the Supreme Court will decide the parameters on all of those issues. And for the life of me, I don't want to relitigate 2016. For the life of me, the Democrats or progressives who sat out that election, who did not vote or voted third party when the Supreme Court was at stake, as it is every quadrennial election, they should be shamed enough. Once is too many. Once is enough. Supreme Court should drive us together. Republicans knew it. We need to know that. And I think another thing is, and now that I've got my outrage out of people who <laughs> sat out an election, you never, never sit out an election. Democrats should run as a team. Jay Inslee dropped out since the last time we talked. Democrat, uh, the nominee perhaps should indicate that Jay Inslee might be the uh, Secretary of Energy or the EPA chief. We're running as a team. Elizabeth Warren doesn't, if she gets the nomination, I will support her with every, every fiber of my being. If she doesn't, she'll be in the Senate, hopefully with a Democratic president. The same with Bernie Sanders. Our ideals for this country are so much better for the people of this country. We need to run as a team and never forget it. Let me just say that if Elizabeth Warren becomes the nominee, say she wins, that adds another Republican to the Senate. Well, that's true. And, you know, because the governor of Massachusetts is a Republican, we're going to get into all of that in future shows. And that's a that's a point to make. And, and I, you know, in future podcasts, we'll probably talk about <laughs> who, who would be the best nominee from our points of view. But I want to stress that on this podcast, we are unified. And I, that kind of leads right into my next point, which is what can we do to make sure the party isn't divided? So the thought leaders that are out there, including the four of us sitting on this table, need to focus on a few things. One is be positive. So if Pete Buttigieg is your candidate, tell me why Pete Buttigieg is amazing. Don't tell me why Marianne Williamson is crazy, right? Stay positive. And second, when somebody drops out, be magnanimous towards that person, even if they don't deserve it. If they go out swinging at the likely nominee, I'm going to under my breath think, well, that's pretty pretty idiotic. But I'm publicly, um, social media, podcast, blog, I'm going to be saying, hey, they've contributed to the conversation and move on. And third, when we see the troll farms putting things out, when we see our friends repeating things like, let's say Biden's the nominee. Oh, Biden's in, in the pocket of the banks. Let's say, no, Biden, Biden is great. He's maybe his voting record isn't perfect, but this is a binary choice between Trump and Biden. If you want to advocate for the little guy, Biden's going to be a hundred times better. Don't listen to Putin. When you repeat things like that, you are doing Putin's bidding. You're doing Trump's bidding. Focus on the prize. Well said. 
I, I, I need to say also that, uh, and I got to go back to the Senate, and you're talking about the Supreme Court, and it, I'll bet you a nickel if, if the Senate wins, uh, Republicans take the Senate again, Mitch McConnell will be the leader again if he wins, and he will not approve any Supreme Court justices uh, uh, nominated by a Democratic president for the next four years. Well, that's probably true if it happens. But what we're talking about here, and I stress two things, unity and turnout. This election is going to be, whether we like it or not, you're talking about all the issues, like it or not, this is going to be a referendum on Donald Trump. We have to have democratic unity, but we have to also understand that independents who voted for Trump and some Democrats have to be brought back into the same fold. You mentioned in our test show how um, high school educated white women are now reversing their support for Donald Trump. They may not be even democratic voters, but independent voters. And Paul, the more of a cascade, the more of a wave we had against Donald Trump, that will hopefully bring in the Senate seats, not just in New Mexico in Colorado and Maine, but also we've got a shot in Kansas. We've got a shot in Iowa. If this tide is big enough, we can win the Senate. Totally agree. I think 2018 was such a great model because people came out, they showed up, we got 40 new wonderful candidates uh, elected into Congress, and they represent all of America, The, the youth, the older folks, the suburbs, the urban areas. I mean, it was such a beautiful turnout and a beautiful effort. So we need to replicate that. Um, we need to keep the enthusiasm I'm going. glad you mentioned youth because one of the things that was so depressing other than the result of the election, the next two days on the news in Portland, Oregon, you saw young kids rioting downtown that Trump was elected. And the local news went around. Almost every one of them said they didn't even vote. The good news is in 2018, the youth cohort... 18 to 25 was up 10 points over the last midterm, 2014 to 2018. That made the difference in states like Montana where you campaigned, where John Tester won that Senate seat. He may not have been expected to win because people at, in, in Montana, University of Montana, Montana State, and Native Americans came out in greater numbers. Unity Trump, and turnout. Trump came to Montana four times. It was very personal against Tester. And Pence came three times. And they actually had the temerity to go to Missoula. I don't know if you know this, but on the uh, on the hill, there's a big M yes. for, in, for Missoula, University of Montana. And they put a little peach next to it. Up on the hill, so it said M. Peach. Nice. Oh, I love it. <laughs> that Very was a nice. beautiful, beautiful thing for his visit. You know, there. Kim, I, I, I was given the youth uh, the credit for the v- Tester's victory in Montana. It may have been Trump and Pence that went there seven times <laughs> yeah, and right. actually turned the tide. Paul, what's our next subject? Our next subject? No, I wasn't quite finished. I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. That's okay. That's okay. I'm ready to move on. Uh, one issue that the Democrats need in order to reframe in 2020, in order to set up the new, the new narrative of 2020. What's the issue? Immigration. They are dropping the ball on immigration. Um, it looks to a lot of people, including myself, that most of the Democratic candidates are for open borders. And that is an untenable position for a lot of people, including a lot of middle-of-the-road voters who want to vote for Democrats but are very uneasy about this open border policy. Um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Steve Bullock. Um, but I appreciated what he brought to the Democratic debate that he, that he appeared in, which was that we need to remind voters that we can both uphold the law and be humane towards immigrants and refugees that come to our border. Um, so I am all for the candidates talking about how we'd be more humane 
uh, immigration reform, but to decriminalize illegal immigration and to stop enforcing the law um, and offer them free health care without reminding people that, yes, we do believe in the rule of law. Borders are important. Um, and so I think most Democrats are right on this issue, but they've got to speak about it completely differently. But before we uh, we each and Paul and, and Kim have That's an issue okay. that we reframe. I just want to say, when people bring up immigration, my response is, and I totally agree with you, Dylan, but um, when George Bush was president, one of the few good things he did, including saving millions of lives in Africa with his AIDS policy, was offer comprehensive immigration reform. His own, The right wing of his own party killed it in Congress. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the same package was offered by Obama. It was a better package. It garnered 12 Republican votes in the Senate. It would have passed the House had Speaker Boehner put it up for a vote, but he didn't because he knew the Tea Party would have his scalp. The rules of the road were there. Mm-hmm. You have to uh, you have to learn English. You have to get in line. You have to pay your fine. We would have dealt with this from the standpoint of the rules of the road would have been decided then. My contention is Republicans keep this issue alive because they want to demagogue it. They want people to fear the other. And that's exactly what Trump did. We had the Republicans in the House pass that bill when they had the chance. Hell, uh, Trump has uh, two, two Republican houses in Congress and they still haven't passed comprehensive immigration reform. Well, and Democrats need to remind voters of this history, that we are for the rule yes. of law, but as exhibited by Exhibit A and B, the Bush administration and Obama administration. That's but right. To, to not remind voters of that um, and simply say, treat, let everybody in who wants to come in, I think is political malpractice. I don't think anybody's saying, let everybody in who wants to come in. Uh, that's but, what I hear when I watch the Democratic debate. Well, that's because that's what the propaganda of the Republican machine I, is putting out. I think out. you're both right. I think Paul is right. There's no Democrat that I know of that says open borders. They're saying things like, well, let's make it a misdemeanor. But you're right, too, because people hear that and interpret it agree. as open borders. So you're both right. So the message has to be framed properly. Exactly. I'm, I'm a Democrat. I, I'm, f- I'm totally for for a humane treatment of any immigrant that wants to come here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am not for open borders. Do I want them to have health care? To some extent, I do. You don't want to let a guy who's sick or a woman who's sick or a child who's sick lay there and die without health care. You want to do something, even if you're going to send them back to wherever they came from. You want to let them live to do that. And uh, we should focus on the things that where there's agreement. And there's a pretty broad agreement on path to citizenship and DACA. DACA is extremely popular. That's right. Mm -hmm. Incredible young people that have come to this country. They're in school. They're working. They're in the military. They have children of their own. Uh, they, I've met some DACA kids. I've done some work to uh, help them with their paperwork. They're amazing. And this this hurt Mitt Romney, by the way, in 2016 because he came out against DACA in Iowa to win his party's nomination. He went right, and then it was another unpopular stance of his in the general election. Kim, did you have any th- thought about reframing issues? Other I know than you're going to talk about the economy, so I'm with both of you that the economy and immigration are are too Paul? important. Uh, immigration, yes, because those states that we lost and those the Democrats lost and the people that voted for Trump or didn't vote, part of the uh, reason they didn't was because they're scared of, of 
of, of letting anybody into the country and open borders. They have to be convinced that that will not happen, that what will happen is humane treatment and going back to the, the, going back to the roots of America. We're a country of immigrants. We want to allow immigration. They don't have to just come from Norway. They, you know, they can come from Honduras and they can come from Congo. By the way, one of the ways that you get GDP expansion is by immigration and having totally. more people here. And, and having cheap labor, forgive me, immigration brings cheap labor. People who are willing to work for nothing to, to feed well, their family. And they also pay into Social Security. I like this issue about what we need to reframe. Uh, I started thinking about this uh, about a month ago when, when, well, I always think about it, but it hit my uh, sweet spot uh, when Pete Buttigieg, Mayor Pete, was on Rachel Maddow because he has a proposal to expand the number of justices on the Supreme Court. And as you may or may not know, the number of justices is not prescribed in the Constitution of the United States. Originally, I think there were five members of the court, and then up to seven, and now currently nine. And, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell last week has gone crazy about this, sending out memos that the radical Democrats are going to change the court. Rachel Maddow asked Pete Buttigieg a month ago, isn't this a radical idea? And he says, no. Republicans have already done it. They changed the number from justices from nine to eight until they got a Democratic president, exactly. a Republican president, who uh, they, they stopped Merrick Garland's nomination. So they are the radical ones. This is the kind of reframing that I'm talking about here. And and I'd like to see it move to 11 or 13. I'd like to see a balanced court. I'd like to see half and half with one swing person in the middle, the way it's always been <laughs> well, and the way it works. It's always been that way. Well, Actually, it was been. a very liberal court in the Warren era. All right, after well. Warren. I, mean, I, th- I think there's a... I like Pete Buttigieg's willingness to think outside the box. He's creative. He's smart. He looks at systemic problems, which I like. I don't think that's the right solution. I'd I'd rather see something more like one-year, 18-year terms, single-term limits, every two years you appoint a new one, or maybe have – four Democrats, four Republicans, and those eight people choose the ninth. I mean, something like that. But well, what we yeah. have now is terrible. My point was, like and, and by like the way, that. my point was not on this issue that it's ever going to happen because I don't think it is going to happen. Mm-hmm. My point was this is how you reframe an issue, that the the Republicans are the radicals. Mitch McConnell in practice has changed the number from nine to eight till it suited him to go back to nine. I would say for my reframing, again, uh, uh, this is the Obama recovery that Trump is killing. I mean, during the last two and a half years of the Obama administration, there were 220,000 jobs created every month. Under Trump so far, it's only 191,000. Real earnings went up higher under Obama than Trump. Of course, he gets all these accolades for the quote-unquote good economy. And yes, unemployment is historically low. And yes, the job numbers continue good to be good. But this is the Obama recovery. As Joe Biden said, it's just another thing he inherited. Okay? <laughs> That's a great so, line. So it's a great line. So this is our recovery. He's the one endangering the economy with this stupid management of a trade war. And I'm, I'm all for dealing with China as a currency manipulator. He ought to be doing it in concert with our trading partners and allies, and he's not. He's accumulated incredible debt, added $2 trillion to the debt, and he is, uh, uh, no one knows what he's going to do, which spooks the markets and our allies. So he's the one killing the recovery. This is a reframing we need to do. And the second point about the economy uh, is that this is not what he is doing is not changing the trajectory structurally of the economy that we made a start under Obama with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and Obamacare. But what Trump is doing is not helping. In fact, it's hurting income. It's expanding income and wealth 
inequality. If we're really going to have a middle class that flourishes in this country, we all know this is progressives. We're going to have to structurally change what we're doing as a nation so that everyone has access to affordable health care and a good education and well-paid jobs. He has taken us back, not forward. This is the kind of reframing we all should be doing. Another it, issue that needs to be reframed, in my opinion, is the Democrats have to have to show themselves to be and convince the rest of the country that the Democrats are really the people that are pro-farmer, that are pro-rural. They're, they're the people that are trying to trying to maintain farmers making a living and not going bankrupt. They're the people that are trying to maintain hospitals that you can get to in rural areas without traveling for three hours. I would just say to that, I, I don't mean to to, denominate the, to dominate the conversation here. That is not my point. When I hear things like this, I agree with you. Who is the party that's standing up against big factory farms and multinational organizations that are taking the small farmers and ranches off their land and that pushing them off the land? It's the Democratic be, Party that's doing that, that needs, not the Republican that's Party. That's the issue that needs to be reframed. The Democrats are not the ones that put the ridiculous tariffs on that are putting small farmers out of that's business. Right. The Democrats are not the people that passed the $16 billion uh, 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 aid package to the farmers. That's Twenty-eight billion. That's going twenty-five billion to the agricultural right, uh, right. Uh, factories right. rather than the farmers, small farmers. Farmers want to work and sell their product. They don't want to have to live off government subsidies. And and the 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 uh, the other the issue that comes off of that's a sub issue is tariffs and tariffs being a regressive tax. Right. Tariffs are not a progressive tax. They're paid more by poor people than they are by rich people. Well, this and goes to, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Another reframing aspect is when we talk about the strength of the economy, we can't just look at the stock market. Right. Only the top, you know, 30% of earners, let's say, are in the stock market. So there's people that are working. They are not benefiting. Their wages haven't increased in 35 years. Real and wages have not gone up. And that's why I say these numbers that you see really don't, uh, you know, people aren't better off than they were when Trump took office. They still worry about being able to afford health insurance or the health insurance that they had. Does it, does it cover what we need? Or can we afford college for our kids? It's gotten worse, not better. You know, it's funny. Obama was always so careful to say the economy was good. He always couched it in terms of, well, it's stronger, but it could, it could be stronger. Or it's helping some people, but not helping everybody. Trump's been the exact opposite, which is that every time he speaks about the economy, he talks about how wonderful it is for everybody. I think we need to hang that around his neck, which is, you know, you live by it, you die go, by it. go to audiences who aren't benefiting and say, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Trump's saying you're doing great. Is that true? Well, Obama always said and believed, and I think Democrats would believe, you, you build the economy from the middle out. Trump is a classic supply sider, although mm -hmm. he couches in shell, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing, saying, I'll give you a little tax break, which amounts to nothing, while I give my supply side tax break to the wealthy and the largest corporations. Right. In a different new show, I'd like us to discuss supply side economics and the value sure. of it and the uh, uh, and whether it's good for or bad for the country. Well, I, I you know, again, there are studies, I've seen four of them that show that the vote in 2016 for a lot of those people was really more about cultural issues. It was mm -hmm. about Colin Kaepernick kneeling and and Black Lives Matter as they define Black Lives Matter uh, than it was economic. Economic insecurity feeds this that allows Fox and Trump to push the lever of, of fear and ignorance. Um, but so we have to be aware of all of it. But this is a great question about reframing. What's our what's our next one? 
I'll, I'll leave this one. Oh, I had more for it, but I'll leave it to say that our next one is talking about the primaries. Uh, what are the pros and cons of using the same primary calendar every four years? Can anyone argue that the West has a meaningful say in choosing our presidential nominees? There, well, I would sub- I would submit that there are no pros. Um, the current the current process is like the electoral college in that it gives a few states all, all the power and most of the states little to no power. Um, the so essentially what we have is New Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. Those four states. By the time we get to the fourth state, the process is essentially done. You then have Super Tuesday where. Um, uh, 16 different primaries are, are happening all at once. And so the other problem with this process where uh, these four, same four states have so much say is that it's also front-loaded to the South. And what I mean by that is if we look back to 2016, by March 15th of 2016, 30 of the 50 states had already had their primaries, which means, I mean, as those of us who know who follow this stuff, once 30 states are done, the process is essentially complete. At that point, in, on March 15th of 2016, 56% of the total delegates were from the South even though the South only comprises about a quarter of the nation's population. In contrast, the Western states, um, although they have a quarter of the population, only had 5% of the delegates. And so what happened in 2016, what's going to happen in the foreseeable future, is that the nominees of both parties will tend to be more conservative than the rest of the country is because we have a Southern electorate choosing our nominees in these processes. How would you, how would you, how would you restructure it? Um, a co- I think I would, the, the idea that I would have, it have four different maps that we would cycle through. So every four years okay. you cycle through and, and you and you rotate it in a way that no region has an overweighted power. And the second thing you do is you recognize the value of retail politics. So I think New Hampshire as a starting place is a great idea because it's a small state. You've got to go out, you've got to meet people. Um, but instead of New Hampshire, it can maybe Oregon, for example, would be a well, great state for that. Let me, let me just add that um, you're right. <laughs> Iowa, okay. Iowa, New Hampshire. I'll give you one more statistic. And I, uh, New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina, Nevada. I, I just made this calculation today. Their population total is 3.8% of the American population. So essentially, the four key states in our primary process are under 4% of the population. California, this session, moved its primary from June to Super Tuesday. Oregon had two bills in the, in the 2019 session to do the same thing, different uh, bills, but uh, both of them died in committee. Now, there have been dozens and dozens and dozens of bills in the United States Congress over the years for a national primary. The, the knock against a national primary, though, mm. is that the incumbent or the richest candidate has the advantage. The, yeah, highest they can, name ID. Highest name ID. When you say national can, primary, you mean all at once on yes, one day? Yes, there would be a on one day, day a Republican and Democratic primary to choose the nominees. One day. The inherent bias, though, is to the person who has the most money and the most name recognition. I, 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 so I'm not for a national primary. What I am for, there's been a proposal out there for rotating regional primaries. Mm, that I like. And that is the, Dylan said it first, but that's the idea I like. Now, under, there'll be five weeks of primaries. They let New Hampshire and Iowa go first. Mm-hmm. They give them their due. And um, they that's the first week is Iowa, New Hampshire. Then they divide up the U.S. to, to uh, northeast, south, midwest, and west. And every four years, they would rotate in those orders. I think that's probably the best way to do it. Well, they say there's two tickets coming out of Iowa. So two candidates 
are at the top. And maybe in this crowded field that's historically large, we will have three or four. But it's definitely a winnowing process that happens right off the bat. And neither New Hampshire nor Iowa are representative of the rest of the country. You pointed out by size, also their demographics. demographics. Yeah, too white. So, and what Carl was saying is absolutely right. California did move theirs up, and that's what everyone's been doing the last 30 years is everyone's inching forward. But the solution isn't to front load. The solution is for Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina to get out of the way. Give somebody else a turn. Here's something you may not know. New Hampshire has this position because they were the first state to create a presidential primary. It did so in 1920. It didn't become relevant until 1952, really. But you know the law that was passed in New Hampshire? Do you know what it says? In 1920, that their primary should be held at least seven days before any other primary. Mm -hmm. So they have written into law. Now it's changed over the years that it will be the first. Now it's the first Tuesday in March, but the Secretary of State in New Hampshire has the power to move it. So they, by law, are going to go first. So what happens? Plus, there's like seven people that vote at like midnight. What's that like? You're standing in line. Yeah. You're like with the other seven people. It's like a reality TV show. You know, sit up at night waiting. What happens if Oregon passes a law that says our primary has to be seven days before New Hampshire? Other states have tried to to leapfrog New Hampshire, and the parties take away, the parties object to it because they want, they bow to New Hampshire and Iowa. That's the Democratic, I don't know about the Republicans, but Democrats have always said, no, 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 no. We're not, the way to solve this is go ahead. New Hampshire and Iowa, you can go first, but then the succeeding four weeks, we're going to have a regional, uh, a regional system. I think that really is the best. I way. want to go to why I also think a national primary day is no good, because I think it doesn't give every candidate a, a, a reason, a motivation, and an opportunity to go to visit every state and give them enough time to do that in the middle of all the primaries. Yes. Yeah. So I think that uh, because I thought a national primary would be great. The other thing that, that the, the, the reason uh, uh, Iowa and New Hampshire and those other, Nevada and South, yeah, Carolina. South Carolina, the reason that they're, uh, uh, they have much more weight than they deserve is because out of those states, once, the, once decisions are made there, donors start moving away from the people that have lost. Right. And that's not quite fair. So I really do like... Wait a minute. Something not fair in America? <laughs> I really do like uh, the uh, the regional uh, primaries for four different regions and and, and, and moving. And by around. the way, this has been debated since I was in high school, which is ancient history. Will and it, it ever change? It, yeah, absolutely. And, and direct election of president without the electoral college—that's been debated since I was in high school and probably before that. There's even a Delaware plan, which starts with the small states first, and then the next week there are four primaries, and the largest states go last. I think the rotating regional primary is is the way to go. I'm 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 in agreement. I hadn't thought of that. Thank you, Dylan, for bringing that up. We call it the Dylan plan. Yeah, <laughs> we got to try something new. Uh, uh, What's our fourth? Question? Our fourth question is uh, a little bit more opinionated, uh, and that is uh, how do, how does the most unchristian president Trump maintain the support of evangelical Christians? Is it just abortion? What is it? We want to start. Oh, sure. okay. Uh, we're talking about white evangelical here. White evangelical. He has a support of seventy uh, percent or so. Eighty-five percent. Is it eighty-five? 81. I've seen eighty-five percent in the okay. last election. These are white evangelicals. Look, I've always said on radio that religion can be used for good or evil, and it has through history. 
I mean, Ralph Reed will go on TV and talk about how abolitionists were Christians. At the same time, people in the South who uh, created the institution of the slavery in their region justified it as Christians on biblical grounds. So there is a a loving God and there's a punishing God. The loving God says immigrants – Please come to this country. We welcome you, especially if you're fleeing violence. The punishing God says, send her back. So we have to understand who we're talking about here. And the white evangelicals in this country have simply been convinced by people like Jerry Falwell Jr. and Jerry Falwell before him and Franklin Graham that theirs is the correct God. And it's not. People like Franklin Graham, in Don't my opinion. Don't forget Jimmy Swaggart. Right. I, I used to have a joke, <laughs> by Jim the way. And Jim Baker. By the way, I had a joke in the 80s. It's Jim Baker, Jim Swaggart got caught with prostitutes. We found out how those Bibles got in all those hotel rooms. So, uh, I mean, it never goes away. But, but the, 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 the point is that. That's a these good joke are, these, for now, too, uh, by the way. Of course. Nothing ever changes. They, 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 um, they, they are fake Christians to me. I don't, I don't think Donald Trump or Jerry Falwell Jr. or Franklin Graham know anything, show they know anything about the gospel. And there are also con men like Donald Trump himself. These are real con men. I want to say one more thing that really frightens me. One of my favorite guests on Carl in the Morning was a University of Baltimore law professor named Garrett Epps, E-P-P-S, who has studied this. And his theory is, and he's been to all the meetings of these groups, and, and this really actually feeds the Federalist Society, there are many evangelical, white evangelicals who believe that the U.S. Constitution is derivative from the Ten Commandments, that we are the chosen nation, and um, that you that is why you get the link between fundamentalists of the Bible and what they call originalists of the Constitution, that we have to go by the Word of God, and the Constitution is the Word of God. This is the basis of Christian nationalism, which really overlaps with, with white nationalism. So this is a frightening thing. When we talk about Christian nationalism it, or white nationalism, it, it just isn't. Uh, the Proud Boys and, and the Nazis. It also includes kind of a brainwashing of Christians to be unchristian, if you will. Do you know there were originally 15 commandments and then Moses dropped one of the tablets on the way down? Yo! <laughs> Out of those 10, I think Trump has violated like eight. Well, but why, just, would, why me, would you have Christians support a man who has even, and this is the Old Testament, violated clearly. They say, oh, it's abortion. We want justice on the Supreme Court. If you're if you're anti-abortion, most of these people are pro-birth. They're not pro-life because Jesus. when it comes to feeding kids and housing them and giving them a good education and health care, they're often get nowhere to be found. Jesus. They're also cool with abortion doctors being uh, right. Yeah, right. Outed, uh, oft. Uh, Jesus preached kindness to foreigners, turning the other cheek, tending to the sick, not selling favor. Being rich makes it hard to get into heaven. Uh, he, he care for the poor and oppressed and faith in the institution of marriage. This is the Machiavellian bargain that Republicans mm-hmm. made in the late 60s and early 70s, or late 70s, excuse me, and, and, and accelerated under Reagan. They merged the white evangelicals with the supply-siders because they needed troops to get out the votes. These were these are the churches in the South. And, and look, black churches get people to the polls as well. I understand that. But this is a radical view of Christianity. Their church radio stations became Rush Limbaugh radio station. This is a bargain with supply-siders and evangelicals. And can you think of two things that shouldn't mix the wealthiest and Jesus? Right. Come on. I need a, you know, I, I want to be careful in their discussion that we don't 
use too broad a brush, um, but the, I, I think we can all agree that Christianity is an antithesis to what Trump is as a human being. Yeah. And so I, mean, I, I look at, there's different types of Christians that fall into the Absolutely. Trump category. That's why I started with white evangelicals. That's right. where his support is. There, there's the single issue voters who, who, who will accept any uh, sh- uh, personality shortcomings as long as they put uh, Supreme Court justices up there that will vote pro-life. There are those that... Anti-choice, you mean. Anti-choice. There are those that... Um, that mistake bellicosity and bullying for knowledge and power and strength. And I think there are people within the Christian faith that are just naturally drawn to strong authoritarian figures. And Trump provides at least one person. The loving God versus the punishing God. Exactly. Um, And there's some that just put tribalism over faith Mm -hmm. and they they will not admit it. Maybe they don't recognize it, but for them being a Republican is more important than being a Christian. And then there's a lot of people that just live in communities where they hear nothing but Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, uh, it reminds me of the woman that was uh, somebody interviewed her at a rally and asked her about uh, Mueller's report and started talking about what was in it. And it was the first time she'd ever heard that he'd done anything wrong. And so <laughs> if all you hear is people right. telling you how wonderful he is, how great he is, then why not support him? I used to be on the road in the 80s doing comedy in God knows where. And the only stations you could get were either Rush Limbaugh or other, other yeah. Christian stations. Yep, It's a well, wasteland. I went to the dictionary. The definition of evangelical. Uh, is according to the teachings of the gospel or the uh, uh, or the Christian religion, synonyms: scriptural, biblical, Bible believing, fundamentalist, and orthodox. So my my what I came out of that is evangelicals are not evangelical. Well, of course, they're, I mean, they, to me, as they express it, I don't hear a lot of gospel in it. Mm-hmm. Let me say one thing about Garrett Epps while I brought his name up. Um, I'm not going to recommend a lot of books maybe in this podcast, but one you ought to get and put on your radar, Garrett Epps, is called – he wrote a book called Wrong and Dangerous, Ten Right-Wing Myths About Our Constitution. It's really – because you see what they're twisting of the Constitution, and they do it through Rush Limbaugh, through right-wing radio, through Fox. Garrett Epps really lays it out well in that book. And talk about reframing. That's also what we need to do. And, you know, Carl, you're talking about uh, this in a religious context, but George Lakoff also is a proponent of um, explaining to us how our metaphors influence our political dialogue. And he's got the strict father model that the GOP subscribes Mm -hmm. to and the nurturing family model that the Democrats uh, subscribe to and then we talk over each other and we don't there's no connection between those two we really are on two different pages uh, in appealing to the electorate and we really need to think more about that uh, I just said I wouldn't mention a lot of books I'll mention another one Chris Mooney uh, wrote The Republican Brain we had him on the show a lot and really it comes down to the creative mind uh, usually Democrats or liberals are opening to new ideas they like art culture welcome different people because their mind is expansive whereas that top down I just mentioned punishing God that strict top down severe mindset is the conservative brain generally. So yes, it feeds into our politics. Look, uh, we want to have a little fun on this show too in discussing... Uh, I need to say one more oh, thing about I'm it. I'm not getting to fun. And, See, uh, usually Paul <laughs> produced shows that I was on and I'm <laughs> <laughs> kind of reigning Emmett. And I say that that, that for, for years, uh, 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 liberals and intellectuals have, their, have had their point of view out dominating over everybody else in the country because of its creative, intelligent, uh, studied, scientific sense. 
And the the evangelicals for years have been considered themselves under the thumbs mm-hmm. of of the intellectuals and the liberals. And I say that Donald Trump is emotionally the evangelicals' revenge. I think well, that they're getting even for th- these. This years. actually started in the '60s when conservative think tanks were um, they were really uh, they, they were upset to put it mildly the way they thought television, Hollywood, and academia were changing their narrative of America as the great, uh, you know, laissez-faire in America. And they came up with the seeds of right-wing radio to really present an alternate reality of what this country was. So that's, yes, uh, that's part of the fight that's taking place right now. And at some future time, I'll tell my personal story of Jerry Falwell. Yeah. Can't wait. Paul knows everyone. Can't wait. Um, We we thought uh, that uh, some of us or each of us on every podcast would present something maybe a lot of people don't know. Anybody want to go? I will. Uh, My fact of the week that I thought was really interesting is 14% of people who take an Ancestry.com DNA test learn that one of their parents is not their biological parent. <laughs> wow. 14%. Wow. wow. That's a lot. I love it. That's a that's a myth of America exploding right yeah. there. Mom, Dad, you have something to tell me? Yeah. I, I got 2% on the sign, and I'm embracing it. Ooh. My 23 and me. I have 1% Far East Asian. Really? Which which explains my passion for Korean food. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, uh, Trump has a new service. It's just called Me. Mm-hmm. And you do your swab, and he sends him back information about himself. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I came up with my little little fact last week that I told you guys, but I thought it's it's worth repeating. The average life of a baseball in the major leagues is seven pitches. Then it's gone. Would you have known that, Dylan? No. I would have guessed more. Yeah, yeah I, would I wouldn't have, have known, known it either. Yeah. Gone. Seven pitches and gone. What do they do with all their balls? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a question the gay community asked in the early 80s. I, I phrased it that way on purpose. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm gay, by the way. That wasn't a shaming That wasn't a shaming thing. I can say it. Dylan, you got something for us? Yeah, so I, you know, I've been horrified by uh, what's been happening in Brazil with the, the rainforest. Yeah. And so last couple of weeks, I've actually been eating more tofu. I tried the new Burger King um, Impossible Burger, which is great. Looking forward to more. I love um, it. Yes. Um, and so I was looking at this and I, and I found out that 44% of all millennials, this came out in a poll released last week of 2000 millennials, 44% report changing their dietary habits in order to be more environmentally conscious, which made me feel kind of good about the future. Yay. Fantastic. That's good. That's yeah. positive. I think it's wonderful. I, I'm the opposite of millennial. And about three weeks ago, I tried and I'm so far successful in becoming a vegetarian. Hey, congratulations. Wow. Nice. Good job. And I nice. love the Impossible Burger. What I hate is having to go to Burger King to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> they had a comparison. You could get, I think it was like nine bucks and you got two of them. So you could come, the real meat one, the Whopper. And nice. And the Impossible Burger, so you could you could try them both out. I want to move from burgers to Mamie Eisenhower, and you may not hear that on every show, but <laughs> I want to give Mamie some love. Um, I, I she like, needs it since I didn't give it to her. Whoa! <laughs> wow. A little Kate Summersby joke. Um, I uh, I love to read different things, and the White House Easter egg roll. It actually started in 1877 <laughs> under, I think, Rutherford B. Hayes, and there are old photos in the late 1800s of black kids at the Easter egg roll. But from about 1890 um, onward, uh, African-American children were not invited 
to the Easter egg roll on the lawn of the White House. In fact, they set up a separate event for them at the National Mm. Zoo. Well, uh, in April of 1953, uh, three months after Ike was elected, Mamie Eisenhower put her foot down and said, absolutely not. And she welcomed African-Americans, kids, and their families to the White House. And I thought that's a great thing. And we should acknowledge, I love to acknowledge uh, things about even Republicans or people that we don't know too much about. So good for Mamie Eisenhower. Since I knew you were going to be talking about Mamie Eisenhower, I did a little research on Mamie Eisenhower. Did you? I did. And I found that number one. I've had a positive influence on you. (laughs) (laughs) One of her uh, most quotable quotes was, I let my husband run the presidency, and I flipped the pork chops. Yeah, she did. And she was maybe also cut coupons out. She ran the White House staff in a very good way and saved money. When a lot of people, you know. I also read about Mamie that she had uh, a Meniere's disease, which yep. makes you wobbly and unsteady on your feet. And people thought she was often drunk because of that. But she was unfortunately under the inner ear issue. Well, I'll give you two more things on the White House Easter egg roll before we go. And uh, probably the biggest scandal was in 1910 when um, several children went missing and there was rumors that William Howard Taft ate them. Um, (laughs) Under him in the bathtub. uh, And and the baseballs. And and the most inspiring speech ever given was in 1961 when President John F. Kennedy came to the White House lawn and said, uh, address the kids, hippity. Hoppity, <laughs> here comes Peter Cottontail, <laughs> hopping down the bunny trail. <laughs> Hippity, hoppity, East is on its way. <laughs> well, that's it for our podcast this week. And we're going to try to do 45 minutes to an hour every week. Um, and you'll see it on Wednesdays. Listen to it on Wednesdays. And I want to thank Kim Upham, Dylan Hydes, and Paul Block, uh, my great friends, for joining uh, me every week. And as we say, it's smart politics. And we want to make a difference and help you to have the tools to join us to help defeat Donald Trump. Patrick Zahn has done a magnificent job producing our, our first show. And we'll produce all of them. And our music was written specially for us by Brian Sussman. There you go. Thanks, guys. And uh, all of you out there, we'll talk next week.